promptly distributed 30,000 copies in pamphlet form and allowed two mass circulation magazines to reprint it. Six months later, James was dead. His eloquent words of caution lived on. Civilized man, wrote James, by which he primarily meant the citizens of Europe and the United States, has developed a sort of double personality about war. On the one hand, no legitimate interest would seem to justify the tremendous destructions which a war would necessarily entail. It would seem that common sense and reason ought to find a way to reach agreement in every conflict of honest interests. Yet, well-meaning citizens who point this out fail to realize the full inwardness of the situation. Men of every nation were still willing, even eager, to fight, and most women supported them, because war seduced as well as horrified. It was a mark of the strong life, of life in extremis. In contrast, peace advocates appeared weak, soft, and ineffectual. James sketched out an idea about what should be that was less convincing than his analysis of what was. His alternative to war was a form of mandatory national service, draft the whole youthful population to spend a few years toiling cooperatively in pursuits from mining coal to washing dishes to digging tunnels. Such labor would, he surmised, help our gilded youths to get the childishness knocked out of them. But he failed to explain why such pursuits would appeal, morally or otherwise, to their ungilded counterparts who were already laboring for scant wages in mines and mills, much less to older workers who might lose their jobs to the new industrial conscripts. James, who sympathized with the idea of socialism, did not neglect the stark economic inequalities of the modern world. Near the end of the essay, he lamented, that so many men, by mere accidents of birth and opportunity, should have a life of nothing else but toil and pain and hardness and inferiority imposed upon them. This is capable of arousing indignation in reflective minds. Men trained to kill, James knew, often learned to sublimate such injuries of class. So the gap between outrage and solutions yawned wide, frustrating even his sublime intelligence to narrow. A Motley Gathering of Peacemakers If the anti-war activists whom James criticized were naive, theirs was a remarkably pervasive condition. In 1912, William Hull, a devout Quaker and a history professor at Swarthmore College, compared the peace movement of his day to the abolitionists of the 1850s. Like the Crusaders against slavery, peace groups were aggressively on the offensive, uniting great numbers to marshal a vast body of fact and argument and sentiment, economic, political, and moral, in proof of the folly and wickedness of warlike preparations as a means of ensuring national defense and of warfare as a means of procuring international justice. Hull hoped it would not take another terrible war to persuade the world to finally come to its senses. In the United States, peace advocacy was indeed growing more popular, even fashionable in the decade before the Great War, but its breadth belied a certain incoherence and a potential weakness. Some activists called themselves, or were derided by their opponents, as pacifists, a term that meant something quite different than it does today. First employed in 1901, in French, at a Universal Peace Congress, it referred rather vaguely to anyone who put great faith in agreements that would further the policy of avoiding or abolishing war, as the Oxford English Dictionary put it. Thus, Carnegie, James, and Adams were all pacifists, although only the latter opposed any use of force to settle disputes. Pacifism at the turn of the twentieth century meant the conviction that war and the sentiments that encouraged it should be and could be eliminated. That belief did not override a preference for one nation over another. Indeed, 
By 1915, many former pacifists would be cheering for the Allies to defeat the Central Powers and rooting for their own country to take part in the fighting. While the idol of world peace lasted, one could abhor war for many different reasons and propose quite different ways to limit or abolish it. Prominent statesmen, businessmen, and international lawyers sought to replace global disorder with a new world system, regulated by commercial empires. They led the major peace organizations and dominated the debate about alternatives to war. Feminists, in contrast, preached the duty to extend what Adams called the kingdom of human kindness, from neighbors to communities to nations to the world at large. Socialists and union leaders claimed that structures built on avarice were to blame for militarism. To defeat the latter, one would have to challenge or dismantle the foundation from which it sprang. Progressive lawmakers in both major parties viewed preparations for war as a distraction from the assault on...